Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are getting into the first part of our May Mental Health Book Club, and we are going to be discussing a memoir by Prince Shakur, which is titled When They Tell You to Be Good. And so today, if you're reading along with us, we're doing the beginning of the book through page 86. And as always, we jump in with our discussions with kind of getting everyone's first impressions of this new book. So I am enjoying the the Jamaican culture that's um, sprinkled throughout and learning about the different um, gender roles that they have kind of embedded. Um, and then also seeing basically a single mom's um, journey through parenting um, and, and parenting, you know, um, all, all children are unique, but in particular ones who, you know, are, um, you know, who might have, you know, a, a not, I guess, not standard, I don't know what you would call it, um, you know, sexual orientation, you know, um, especially being from Jamaica, I find that it's, that's very, very interesting. Um, the book is interesting so far. It gets a, some of the transitions are kind of weird from how it starts out to where we stopped at like page 84, 85, somewhere around there. Um, so I am curious to see what he comes up with next, but, um, so far it's been kind of like a adventure of seeing him go back and forth between worlds of being with his mom in the States and being with the grandma in Jamaica. For me, I feel like structure, the structure too is like, um, almost like a stream of consciousness sometimes, like when he's remember looking through the photos or remembering his dad and he's sort of lost in the pictures and he's describing them. Um, but they're, it's, jumping around from lots of different perspectives and images. Um, so, which kind of reminds me of how I sort of think and process things. Um, so, yeah, from, but I, I totally agree. Like it, it, it is a very it's a unique style of writing, but it, it kind of makes me think of a stream of consciousness in a way. As we get into the discussion, we get glimpses into the relationship with the mom, but it isn't until further into this section of reading that you realize. And I think if if you were here for the month that we did, The Body Keeps the Score, we can kind of have that vantage point of a lot of behaviors usually have a root of trauma. And so at first, I'm reading his like anecdotes about his mom, and I'm like, I don't like her. She gaslights, she's attention-seeking, she's abusive, she's homophobic. But then as time goes on, which we'll, of course, discuss, we see that she's heavily traumatized, too. Which, again, we're not excusing someone's behaviors based on their trauma. However, when you start out and then you're, you know, you're kind of getting to introduce to the characters and stuff like that, and then you're starting to get deeper and deeper into the backstories, it's like, okay. She's got trust issues. She's been burned a lot of times. She, you know, um, she's, you know, like you said, Becky, uh, it's a, it's a single mother um, trying to figure out how to do the best she can. So I'm interested to dive into some of those discussions. So I'll start off with a quote kind of on that same note of what I just shared. So on page 13, the author is talking about, uh, I guess, one of his close friends, his mom had passed away. 
And he almost looked at her mom as like a second mom to himself. So he really took that loss very hard. But as he's helping his friend, like pack up the, the mother's belongings and stuff like that, he says, quote, how many times would black children be left with the wreckage, whether large or small of their parents' lives? And that particular quote right there kind of hit. And I think it's pretty, it's kind of on brand with some of the other stories we've read of people in this book club. It's kind of a common occurrence or experience. So I just wanted to start off with that quote. Uh, Any thoughts on that one? I mean, you know, I think when you add the, the verbiage of the Black children, it, for me, it paints a much broader picture than just generational, almost like a legacy trauma. Um, if, if I could even put it into words, how far back the trauma started, um, I do, um, agree with the trauma. Yeah. Like it's the generational trauma is real. It's absolutely passed down. Um, I feel like I've even read that it can be embedded in the DNA a little bit. Um, so I, you know, going through my own, um, trauma recovery journey, (laughs) I completely understand. And I almost could change that. Like for me personally, it'd be like how many of my family's generations have to go through it before somebody just says enough's enough, you know, they just stop. And an image that comes to mind when you said that he shares at one point in this, this reading that he got his first tattoo and on his back, I think it's a, like a black power fist, but it's holding a chain that has been broken. And that just came to mind when you shared that, because truly, as we get into his trauma and his experiences and stuff like that, I think he's foretelling, foreshadowing, I think they mean the same thing, that he is intent on breaking that chain. And I thought that was a very powerful image. I will say that part of his writing style is that he he creates images. I think he thinks in images. So he's kind of trying to articulate that in the written word. So I just wanted to share that. No, and I, I feel like I as well think very much remember in images. Um, the, I, I really struggle with names, but I will know their face forever. But speaking of images, I'm like, as I, as I usually do these book clubs, I'm more so just going through the highlights that I've taken and like going through the different, you know, I have these like little highlighter flags that I put in there. And we were talking about images and my next quote, I'm just going to share it because it's so fitting. Quote, the next day, a photo of me on College Green ended up on the front page of the post. In it, I am wearing gray slacks and a black polo shirt and I'm holding up a sign that says black life. Any life should matter as I stare at the camera. Looking back at the photo a few, a few years later, I recognize a new kind of determination in my face. One that was ready to see how far Black people would have to go to take ourselves out of a world that could so easily destroy us, end quote. So that's an example of how he's using an image to evoke a story. Um, I love that he's able to look back and look at the, recognize in his face that he is stronger. Um, you know, knowing what I know now from reading for the struggles that he he's gone through and and that imagery of the tattoo that we talked about and um you know and and i it's just i love that he's able to go back and recognize almost a turning point you know maybe a renaissance of himself or something like a you know a new stronger version or 
I don't know. I, I like that. But the last part is just aching. It just, it makes my heart ache. You know, take ourselves out of a world that could so easily destroy us. How do you take yourself out of a world, out of a planet? That that makes my heart ache. Becky, you had a, a, alluded to this earlier. Um, and I'm more so just like, because there was a bunch of little small stories about this as throughout the section. And obviously I can't go over each highlight, but he talks about, you know, his family's from Jamaica. So he talks about like the history of colonialism, uh, resistance, the rise of like outlaw masculinity, uh, also known as rude boy culture, the rise of gang violence and how even now, like you think of like traveling to Jamaica, people like, Oh, don't go off of the, resort or don't you know because it's you know people talk about the things but it's like this story just in reading because obviously people who are from there or who have relatives there are not going to the resort places they're going to what jamaica really is you know and it was really cool to see him share not only his experiences in jamaica but he gave a little history lesson on how all of these things kind of built, you know, and so we know, and from the memoirs, some of the ones that I've selected, we talk and through books that we've read in this book club about like generational trauma, oftentimes, you know, for black people that is based in, you know, centuries of enslavement and stuff like that. But same thing happened in other parts of the world too. So like he talks about the history of colonialism and all of that. So based on, all of those like little history kind of background things, what sort of thoughts or what sort of things jumped out at y'all as he was kind of sharing that? I, um, so being, I just, again, on a resort or even like we, we walked off the resort to go to a convenience store. I was looking for, um, um, contact lens fluid or cleaner, whatever. Um, and I, I love hearing them together talking in their native patois um which as a lover of languages you know i speak spanish i'm a spanish teacher by trade and i can pick out the spanish words in there but they don't mean the same thing so that's the colonialism coming into play so they have french and spanish and in their language but they've turned it to make their own and, and I'm wondering if that might even be a code of sort that they've used. I haven't d- dived deeply enough into it. But um, when you listen to them in their native, um, you know, patois together, it's just such a joyous sound to hear them just being together. And then when they're out of that and they're amongst, I guess, that you know, the, the resort members, they're very much, they fall into those sort of roles that he talks about later like the women are very very stoic looking and very quiet the men are extremely gregarious and very outgoing and just want you to have a good time you know and and of course not all there's you know some um some separate so anyway my, my little you know i guess taurus wash view of it all was is is that it's just it's like the tip of the iceberg that i really want to get more into of course also like yeah they talk about the the drug dealing and that culture and how he he talks about he had many 
I don't know if it was uncles or cousins or whatever he used that, you know, came to the U.S. and they just easily fell into our drug dealing culture as well. So, um, which so often is, I mean, I, I could go on for a while about that, but you know, it's like a symptom of poverty um, and trauma, I think. So th- th- there's that parallel, which probably is in most places in the world. Me personally, I've made this choice not to travel to Jamaica only because I'm just like, I'm not going to spend my dollars where I'm not wanted. Um, so a lot of people probably don't agree. They'll be like, well, you can go to the resort and enjoy. But I'm just like, if this young man who's from there, family's from there, he's not even necessarily comfortable within his own family because of the way they treat him. Like, why would I actively support that economy? It just doesn't make sense to me. That's something really important to to think about, too. Like, it's almost a cliche in the Black community, but they say not all skin folks can vote, you know? Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm getting ready to travel to um, West Africa in December. And in, you know, uh, I know where my roots are uh, in West Africa. The place that uh, my father is from, I'm not going there. Uh, due to just feeling the, well, I don't know anybody there. And also, uh, from what I've read, is not the most, like, you know, with me not just being straight African, like, I'm I'm mixed race. Um, I'm definitely American, you know. I don't feel comfortable enough going to that particular place. Uh, and then also, like, reading kind of what the, uh, what is it called? the embassy or whatever the, the website it was I looked at as far as like risk uh, is concerned for that particular country. Uh, for my first time going to Africa, not really trying to, you know, watch my back all the time. Um, so I'm going to a country that, from what I've heard, you know, you can't really speak for a whole country based on, you know, uh, the internet, but it seems to be a little bit more opening and welcoming and like more suited for tourism from Americans of the African diaspora. Right. Um, so I'm going there, um, to a place where I hope I feel welcome. And, uh, but at the same time, I think when you're, when you are a black person and you're traveling, you can't assume that just because we have brown skin that, um, you know, we're going to be welcome somewhere. And I think, uh, you know, especially with Prince and his story, obviously he's, you know, um, openly gay, um, just the sheer like homophobia and, you know, and then we talked about like, okay, the masculinity and the, the gender roles and stuff like that, that we've read about in this book so far. And I imagine, you know, uh, if, if you hear those stories, you're like, hell no, I'm not going there. I, I would not I would not be wanted there. I, I, I would not be welcome. So thank you for sharing that insight, Nita. Can I make a I'll draw another parallel. For example, mm-hmm. like in Mexico, for example, they have a very strong male-centered culture to the, you know, they call it machismo. And it's very, very strong. Um and I've been there probably close to a dozen times. And um it's it can be hard because men will think they can lecture me or, you know, <laughs> or tell me, you know, I, I don't know, just talk to me differently. Um, and perhaps as an American woman, 
I feel like they shouldn't do that, you know? So I don't know if it's my right to even say that they're wrong. Um, I think from a civil rights perspective, obviously they are culturally. I mean, no one was hurting me. They're just annoying me. Um, but the difference there is that I am fluent in their language. So, per, and, and I'm also a five, eight blonde girl who's sticking out like a sore thumb. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. I feel like that, prevalence of um the machismo or the um the male dominated culture it's it's in a lot it's in a lot of places you know and i know this is his perspective and to to that end homophobia is much more rampant in those areas yeah so one quote that i i uh, circled on page 23 i alluded to it i didn't go into too much depth but prince's upbringing with a single mom there was a lot of trauma um a lot of not feeling made not being made to feel like uh he was allowed to exist in his his truth and so i mentioned that he sometimes juxtaposes current events at the time in his story with his own story um but i wrote in the margin with this quote chosen family he seems to find his chosen family at his different junctures in his story. Like his friend as a child, you know, the uh, the mother's name was Crystal, I believe. That was like his second mom. Like he really gravitated towards her and truly grieved that loss. And so here's an example of another chosen family. Quote, in the midst of Michael Brown's death and as America started to feel like it was opening up beneath our feet, People like Eli helped me realize that we should trust the people that will be there when our world, whether personal or collective, implodes, end quote. And I just, those were like the little moments where you could like breathe, because as a person reading the story, and I'll be honest, I had a hectic week last week, so I pretty much read almost all of it today, reading it in one like marathon to like be caught up. Uh, it was a lot of trauma to digest in one kind of day's worth of reading. So I appreciated that in his story, it was it was almost like broken up with, hey, despite this trauma that I've been going through, here was a little bit of respite. And I, I, I like that that was like an element that was kind of woven throughout. What are y'all's thoughts on that in finding a chosen family despite adversity? I think kind of the older we get usually you understand this more it's like i think later he was having this conversation with his therapist and his therapist was like you know once you turn 18 you can leave i have vividly told people that i like volunteer with like this is not permanent you get older you're not having to stay in high school you're not having to stay with your parents you become an adult and you can make your own decisions so for right now it may suck but you get an opportunity to make your own path and i think a lot of people end up gravitating to people that uh, make them feel at home make them feel like family even if your physical family doesn't make you feel that way so for his therapist to know to tell him that it finally set in with him like yeah this is temporary maybe i can get through this probably helps but i mean at the end of the day i think a lot of people are still shaped by their family no matter what but you choose how you deal with them you choose whether you have a relationship whether you talk to them whether you don't 
But the people that prove that they show up for you, those are the people you typically keep around. I could not agree more with that. And, you know, like you said, Nita, like, absolutely. You know, as, as a teacher, I have consulted, you know, my students like, look, when you're 18, you know, you can fly, leave, escape, however you, we want to call it. That's that's kind of what got me through my childhood and knowing that I could escape my environment. And I have a cross stitch that I made that says, friends are the family we find along the or, or that we find along the way. So yeah, friends are the family that we find along the way. So you can make your own family. You know, um, we have friends giving every year um, with friends and it, it feels like family. And um, I love that in the midst of his, really him having to navigate his mother's trauma is what a lot of it is. Um, <laughs> you know, that he, he's, he realizes that and recognizes it and is able to find comfort with his friends. That's important. Now I add to that, he's navigating his mom's trauma while her trauma, untreated trauma is traumatizing him. You know, hurt people, hurt people, the cliche, right? Like it seemed to pass to another generation, but I, I'm going to keep going back to that image of the chain being broken because I imagine that that is going to be where we go with the rest of this book is his development and like working through that. So I want to shift gears. So we kind of talked about kind of the Jamaican, you know, masculinity culture and stuff like that, that uh, Prince gives us an overview of, but uh, something that is crosses over between because he in this book, the, the style is you'll jump between Jamaica to, I want to say it's Ohio. He goes back and forth. So something that we talked about in previous book clubs is respectability politics. So I want to share something from page 25, quote, at a party, a white student introduced himself to me and told me. So this is also after he's talking about, you know, starts to protest and get into activism in college. So you know, the white student introduced himself and told me uh, that he had seen me canvassing around campus. I think these issues are important, he said, close to my ear in a loud kitchen. But getting angry won't make anyone want to listen to you. Those people rioting have to be strategic. It was my first time talking to a white person who, when confronted with my reality of being Black in America, wanted to tell me how I should react to my own unraveling. I argued with him about how these protests were more than just protests to me and tried to get him to understand that for some people, being politically active meant risking death, end quote. And so the reason I share that is because we get into some of the tragedies that have occurred in his family. And I'm going to continue on. Uh, Page 36, we learn... uh, that his uncles were murdered in uh, Jamaica, along with, I believe, one of the uncle's uh, girlfriends. So, quote, a group of men went into their home, forced three people to lie on the ground, and shot them in the back of their heads. Felicity Road lived up to its nickname, Blood Lane. In a 2006 article, the Jamaican superintendent, John Morris, described Sennel and Derek Taylor as, quote, no angels with, quote, extensive criminal records in the U.S. He alluded to the fact that their murders were ordered by criminal elements in the United States with strong links to the criminal underworld in Montego Bay. His rationale transformed the 
the slain into longtime criminals that had just gotten their bit of karma. Then he goes on to say, when I read No Angels, I think of Michael Brown, all the other large murdered Black men to come, and the fear required to turn a man into a monster that must be slayed, end quote. And so the reason I commented on the, the respectability politics is because oftentimes when Black men are murdered, or even Black women, I think of um, Sandra Bland, they want to talk about how difficult someone was or what their history was. And it almost like to, to a certain crowd, it makes it more digestible or more acceptable that this tragedy has occurred. I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times, respectability politics doesn't work because you can be a whole... Uh, highly educated, professional, you know, but based on the color of your skin or based on stereotypes or who you're dealing with, you could end up dead. So uh, I'm interested in what y'all's thoughts on that are. So when you said that, it just brought me back to when he talks about um, having to get beat because to be Black is to weather pain. This is on page 46 like to use some of the same devices used against us in the plantation fields. Our families must break some, that's when they had to pick out a belt to be whipped for strength is what he's calling it. Um, Our families must break some part of us to make us less breakable when the world hungry for black flesh tries to break us too. Love can become a submission or being willing to feel pain from the little boy thrashing in the water as his uncles, as his uncle shoots him into the air for just a moment to the bullet blasting through the back of a skull. The world will break you and make you a man, make a man out of a boy. The world will try to break you because it can, because it has to. That just, you know, that just brought that full circle, that trauma, that generational trauma of, you know, you're whipped in the field, like him connecting it to slavery. And that just, you know, and and then he, you know, you're going to get shot, you're going to get killed. You know, in Jamaica, they say if you're gay, you need to be murdered or killed. So um, that that just that's what brought that quote that you read brought me kind of full circle into that little bit right there. And we're going to go back to the respectability politics in just a second. But since you shared that part, I wanted to share my note to the side of that section that you just shared. I wrote as I was reading this, I said, this is an interesting take on physical punishment because it's a controversial thing in the United States. And it's often a point of misunderstanding between, I say, non-melanated folks and Black people, right? Uh, And on the next page on 47, I wrote in the margin application. So we get an example of how Prince's mom is applying this physical punishment. So quote, when I returned, still visibly annoyed, my mother's mood shifted from concerned to enraged. She stared me down in the kitchen. Then before I could answer her question about my mood, her hand cracked across my face. When I wouldn't give her the answer that she wanted, she jerked her body to move toward me again. Or I tensed, then shoved her away. Something heavy filled her and built a wall between us. She looked at me and said, you're going to grow up to be a woman beater, just like your dad. I hope you go to prison, just like he did. And men have their way with you. When my mother said this, she looked through me darkly and toward a memory. At the time, I thought of how she, 
like many Black mothers, could say, if you get mad about me whooping your ass and try to call the police, you'll be dead before they get here. With the same ferocity as when she said, I'll kill a man before he hits me. And that's an end quote. It's a, when I wrote in the margin application is because like Becky said, it goes so much deeper. It goes into generational trauma. It goes into you're being whooped and beaten in the fields and stuff like that. And it's just, a it's heavy, but it's a illustration of generational trauma. And I don't think I've read it, at least in any book in this book club. I don't think I've actually seen an illustration of that generational trauma shown so vividly. And I just wanted to share that and add to this because, as I said a little while ago, this author seems to write and create things in the form of images. So he did a great job at creating that image there. And I mean, it could be a whole podcast episode debating back and forth on if, you know, this type of punishment should or shouldn't happen or whatever, but it's always more nuanced than just right and wrong. But I just wanted to add that. But I will pivot us back. Folks in the book club, feel free to comment still on what I just shared or what uh, Becky shared from page 46. But we were talking more about the respectability politics. It's also worth mentioning, since we just talked about the uncles and the girlfriend dying, the father, uh, Prince's father gets murdered too. And I'll share that section in just a moment. But um, any any more insights on the respectability politics as far as what we've discussed so far? Um, I mean, you can't evoke change without ruffling feathers would be probably a very light way to say it. And it's really easy for someone who has not been through the experience, life experience of, you know, a black person to say, well, you're not going to get anybody to look at you if you do this. And why are you looting stores and blah, 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 when it's really a pure reflection of rage and, you know, how, how angry they are that the country that's supposed to love and protect them wants them, does not care that they're murdered at all and treated just, you know, I mean, you know, just, just terribly. Um, so no, you can't, you can't do that. And just like women, you know, white women earning the right to vote at one point and then black women are earning it like what, 50 years later or something like that. Like, you know, men did not like that, you know, and we weren't respectable, you know, um, white women didn't like it when black women, you know, like it's that to evoke change, it takes, it's some, it's painful. Change is pain anyway. And so, no, you, you can't have, it's no, not everyone's going to think it's respectable or nice. And that's just, that's just too, too damn bad. So I said I would um, obviously give a little bit more insight. Like I mentioned before, this was a trauma-filled beginning of this book, but we can't critique it because someone's memoir and someone's life story is their story, right? But I had shared about the uncles that were murdered and in the press after the murders occurred, it was almost like, the, they painted it as, oh, these people have criminal histories, you know, they've been involved in drugs and stuff like that. And it almost, like you said, it turned the slain, those who were murdered, into, oh, this is just them getting what they had coming to them, almost as if this was the result of their own doing kind of thing. Um, and so we find out, we don't know a, a lot about his father, other than 
again, the relationship with the mom is uh, traumatic and, you know, uh, sounds like he was not faithful to the mother and mom, when she found out that he wasn't faithful to her, she ended up going into labor way too early, like the heartbreak, like this author does a great job at creating images to really like you feel it, like you see the image through his words and then you feel it. Like it, it was very vivid. So it was intense, but I, I think it's a, a, a beautiful way of writing. Um, and so on page 40, quote, a portrait of my mother and Prince, which is his father, in the late 1980s rest on my grandmother in my grandmother's basement. His dark eyes probed the onlooker to challenge the lion holding onto his lover. Uh, seven years after the portrait, he died violently. My father, strange fruit, not hanging from a poplar tree, but flung onto the roadside of America. For years, I kept a copy of his death certificate that I'd stumbled upon in the attic of our house. His bruised skin, broken bones, scraped knuckles, and a bullet wound to the back of his head were more than just injuries. They were the life-giving and death-bearing details of a ghost, end quote. And in that imagery that he just shared, uh, he's talking about Strange Fruit, which is the Billie Holiday song uh, talking about the history of lynching uh, in the United States. But it's almost like as he's sharing about his dad, because if you read the synopsis of this book, like, uh, you know, whether or not you're going to buy it or not, like on Amazon or whatever, this is the moment, this is the the tragedy that it seems to be something that's going to follow us through the book, because it's almost like the dad is a mystery, and we're going to learn a little bit more about him as we go. But he even takes that and says, you know, this isn't just a person who died because they have a criminal history or something like that. But he said, these are the details of a ghost. And I think from the description of the book, Throughout, we're going to learn more about his journey of finding out what happened to his father. Yeah. So, you know, I, um, I, I hadn't really put that together, but giving birth to a ghost, the giving birth of his father to his father is a ghost to him. I hadn't, that is absolutely beautiful. Just very beautifully written and, and well said, you know, there's that double entendre there too. I don't know. That just, that was very powerful to me. Um, but also too, to kind of connect the um, abuse perhaps that the mother had witnessed. She's definitely been abused by a man, I think, because she talks about, you know, I'll kill a man before he hits me or something, but then she will turn around and hit her own child. And so I guess that talks about the, um, tra what trauma does to the brain and your ability to reason and think through your actions. You're really just reacting, um, which is kind of, you know, yeah. I mean, and I, I kind of, I sort of align with this too, because getting my mom to talk about what her life was like with my father before they divorced when I was three was next to nothing. So I have their wedding album and I can look through it and all the people in it and they're so, you know, happy or whatever. And what my dad used to look like. And it's just, um, yeah, that part is very, it's something that I've wanted to know about, um, but have never really been able to. So I kind of, um, I don't know, that just sort of brought up that memory too. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just heavy shit, man. Just heavy. And I'll add to what you just said too. I mean, I want to say that 
Well, first of all, she goes into labor after finding out that Prince, who were who's the author of this book, that the father, you know, his father was with another woman, right? And then it was kind of the mom is dealing with heartbreak and betrayal. But then also even the imagery of, you know, giving birth to a ghost. And it's like, well, he's named after his father, who is then uh, short. I, I can't remember the exact timing because the book kind of bounces back and forth between the scenes. So it was hard for me to pinpoint. But I feel like it was almost like within a few months or within a year of uh, Prince, the author of this book, being born that the father was murdered. And also you got to think too, the abuse, which again, I'm not excusing the mom, anything that she did, but if Prince looks anything like his father, the mom could be acting out her own resentment to the father on Prince. And I've seen that happen in therapy before where a parent will say, you're just like your father, or you look just like him. I don't want to see you. And also the instance where I just shared it a little while ago where, you know, we were talking about like physical punishment or um, whooping, beating, whatever you want to call it. When he, uh, when Prince didn't react the way, you know, basically quake in fear, like the mother expected him to, she almost like puffed herself up and said, you're going to grow up to beat women, women just like your father did. So one of the things that we hear often through this book And it was shared early in the, I want to say they were in some sort of store, but mom is quick to blindside somebody with a piece of trauma. She weaponizes it. Actually, it's literally the first line of the book. Let me just go back to it. Quote, I was 19 years old and traveling cross country when my mother told me that I'd die soon. Like a man lunging out of a car and away from attackers, I stood in the antique shop in Montana, frozen by the cracking sound in my chest. It was the second time in five years that my mother had brandished my father's murder like a long and rusted machete. Is a mother's heartbreak worse than the heartbreak she gives her son? End quote. Mom weaponizes trauma. And I just wanted to make that connection there. I would say with my experience, absolutely. The mother's trauma is worse in their mind. I would not be surprised that she did name her son on purpose um, after her father or after his father, because she's probably like, does he talk about having siblings? I can't remember at at the moment. The other sibling towards the end of the section, it's (laughs) quite interesting because his name is Prince. The father's name was Prince. His name is Prince. The daughter, who I believe is the sister, is named Princess. So yes, I know there, I believe there's a sibling uh, named Princess, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe then, maybe they picked it out together, who knows, and she was faithful to that. You know, I, I don't really know, but yeah, I mean, my, with my own experience, my mother's um, trauma, my, you know, my mom was, my dad cheated on my mom and, you know, I, she's never forgiven me for that transgression. So it's the gift that keeps on giving, <laughs> although not anymore. So in talking about this, so he has a brother from his mom and then he has a sister on his dad's side. Um when they when he first gets to I guess his grandma's house, the first thing they really bring into focus is that they both look like the dad in different aspects. 
So even when they're talking about the other mom picking up the sister, how that mom looks at Prince with disgust because then she also knows that his dad was probably unfaithful to her as well. So now you have these kids that are getting to know each other that the parents, like the mothers, probably hate each other because both of them feel betrayed by the dad, but the grandma understands that they need to know each other. Your family, you both came from your dad. And I think this happens pretty often within the African-American community here as well, where the moms will hate each other. They'll hate the other kids. And really the person that's at fault is the dad that was spreading seed all over the, the town. And he's usually not left to face any consequences of that, but they will take it out on their kids. They will take it out on other kids that didn't ask to be born. So it's unfair to that extreme. And also as far as like the respectability politics, I remember back when they, Mike Brown, Michael Brown first happened and on the internet it was so polarized because people were like oh he robbed a store he did this he did that he was a kid that laid dead on the sidewalk for hours after this happened and instead of understanding that this is somebody's son people wanted to pay him as such a horrible human being that lost his life unfortunately and it happens all the time every time a high profile case happens and it's an African-American they try to find a way to make them look bad, make them look guilty, no matter what you do. Um, it could go back to being like, yeah, he got suspended one time in middle school. And they'll try to run with that as well, just to make the conservatives feel good about themselves. Yeah. And it that it just it makes me just so furious because who cares if they stole a candy bar or if they even stole cigarettes? That doesn't mean they deserve to die. Like you cannot equate those two. It's it's asinine. And and the fact that that they can justify them their inner thoughts with that, that's absolutely disgusting. I mean, they're you know we're human beings. You know, first and foremost, I, I, you know, there's more genetic difference in a flock of flamingos than there are between humans as we sit next to each other, regardless of how much melanin we do or don't have in our skin. And people, I, I just, I still, to, I don't understand, but it makes me absolutely furious. Like, who cares? Like, I, I just, I don't understand. But what, but really what it is, is because they're black and people don't want to acknowledge that. Like, because what else can it be? You know, I, I, I'm trying, y'all. <laughs> Thank you. One more note on mom's trauma and then we'll move on. On page 51, they're in Cleveland, Ohio. Quote, my mother gripped the steering wheel of her Toyota truck with thin fingers and an ashen look on her face. I could tell from the redness of her eyes and nose that, had sh that she had been crying. When angry, my mother could shift from explosive lioness to a feline dragging her tail between her legs, prone to bouts of silence. End quote. And I highlighted that because like i said when this book starts you know you start reading the book you start to get to know the characters i didn't like the mom at first because you know he gives sprinkles of like the homophobia and the gaslighting and the histrionics and the weaponizing trauma you know um and all of that is not pleasant um and also i have a my own trauma history with a mother of that uh brand and so 
but he talks about how she has different sides. And I think at this juncture, about halfway through the reading, he shows that there's two sides to his mother. And so again, I'm, I guess I'm bragging on the imagery that this, this author evokes, but he shows it's not all just that she's, cause he says like, she could be an explosive lioness, but she can also be a wounded feline dragging her tail. Right. And I think, you know, if we piece together things we've learned from other stories in this, this, this mental health book club and, you know, the body keeps the score and stuff like that. It's not always black or white. There's gray areas. And then there's like flip-flopping between the two. Um, so the next part that I want to get to, I want to share some uh, excerpts about the section of the book where he's being outed. He didn't come out. He was being outed and it was really fucked up. Um, and then after that, we're going to wrap up with the the little section on where he talks about going to therapy, which even the premise of that was kind of fucked up. But we're we're trying to to connect the pieces, uh, obviously, without reading the, the the book verbatim. So what I'm about to share is uh, jumping around within the section because it was several pages long, but I'm going to give snippets. So it may sound choppy, but it's just for the sake of uh, being concise. So, quote, we settled into the truck with darkness in walls and layers around us. I wondered, with irony, could this be a scene similar to how my father had died? In the pit of my belly, even at 15, I already knew that being gay meant I had to be prepared to die. It was the first lesson about the possibility of my own death that I'd learned. Only after this lesson did I learn that being Black meant that I had to be prepared to die, too. Locked in the car, heaving for air, fingers around my neck, scratching and pawing and grabbing for the door, trying to get away, trying to flee toward a life that was mine or something away from expectation. What wasn't expected of me was exactly what I discovered myself to be. Batty boy, D-W-O-Y. Faggot, sweet thing, fragile thing, a boy unconcerned with becoming everyone else's definition of a man. I tense as the driver's side door of the car next to us opened, then closed. A small figure of a dark woman walked around the car, then faced us. Tell your aunt what you told me this morning, my mother said. I began to sweat as I stood in front of the two most important women in my life. Why did you keep this secret from us? My mother asked. I was suddenly aware of how alone we were, my mother with her arms crossed in front of her and my aunt clutching her purse. I couldn't trust you. I didn't trust you, I replied. What reason did I have to? My mother's face contorted and I couldn't decide if the folds in her expression made her ugly or sad. Aunt Vic edged closer to her but didn't extend any physical reassurance. Her gaze shifted between my mother and me. My mother wiped her face, trying to rid herself of the tears as they fell freely. You're 15 years old, barely live your life yet, and now you're under all these influences. You're going to change your mind. If there was any influence that I was under, I replied, it was all the jokes about gay people, all the snickering when you passed them in stores, changing the channel when you saw them on TV. You don't get to choose whether what you say hurts people. In my years of self-questioning, I quickly realized one of my largest fears about life as a gay man in a disapproving family. 
how part of all of my life's best moments would always be reserved for coping with familial rejection. The worst of all, walking towards my husband on my wedding day, empty-handed of my mother, perpetually waiting for her to swallow her pride or to protect me from the world in the way that I needed to be protected. We got back into the car. My mother drove us home in silence. I couldn't shake the thought that maybe I was already dead to my mother. That night, I was unable to sleep knowing that she was in the next room. It wasn't only that I was being rejected. It was also that I didn't completely understand why or how it happened in this way. I couldn't have known when I scribbled in journals and believed that were and believed that words would save me and not haunt me that those words would become my undoing with her too. I'd spent months with my journal. Slowly but surely, I inched toward the truth about myself to myself. I also inched towards not being afraid to write it down and see it as permanent in ink. The act of my body choosing to make the admission physical and not simply assuming it because my peers did was a revelation. This realization began a little death. I was uncertain who was the murderer of spirit and who was the victim, end quote. So rather than giving commentary, I'm interested in what y'all thought as you read his story about not coming out, but being outed. And I will just say real quick, this is not the first time in this mental health book club that a person of color has had their journal read by a parent and has been attacked with it. So um, I'm just interested in y'all's thoughts on that. I think we've seen uh, in a few of the books that we've read, I know Jamel had talked about this too, where her mom went in and read her diary and it caused uh, some problems there as well. Um, I think there are a lot of parents, and rightfully so, they feel like their kids don't necessarily deserve privacy because you're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, But I can't say I blame them. I mean, I wouldn't have talked to her about something like that either. Her history is not somebody that would have been supportive of that revelation that her son is gay. I mean, um, but the fact that you drug him out there to have this conversation in a random parking lot with his aunt is very, very weird to me as well. Um, It's like you wanted somebody there also to back you up to tell him he's wrong. And as a teenager, you're already going through so much. You're already under pressure. So to have two people that you are, they're supposed to protect you basically coming down on you so hard about something that you really don't have any control over is horrible. Um, and we know that's how he ends up in therapy to begin with is his mom is kind of trying to use it to make him not be gay. And we know that doesn't work. Um, That's long been outdated as far as the principles behind that, but it's still several people that believe uh, they can send their kids to therapy and magically they're not going to be gay anymore. So I definitely feel bad for Prince and the fact that he had to go through that in this way, but I'm sure his mom still never took accountability for the way she handled it or any of that kind of thing. And usually that's what we see, unfortunately. Yeah, the, the imagery of him in the truck almost made me feel like I was being attacked. And almost, it almost for a second there, I was like, is he being raped by his mother? And he was being mind raped in a way. Like he just, his mother, his mother sh- should be the ultimate protector and, um, and your backbone when you can't have any. And she just completely 
just pull that away from him. And not only that, but let his aunt in on the whole the whole thing. And so they both came at him. And so he he was attacked, really. And that imagery was extremely powerful for me. And I think it was a great representation of what a panic panic attack is like. Um, just trying to escape an area and then you get out and you're then you're like then front and center, there's number two, you know, staring at you. Um and I completely under I still to this day struggle with writing in a journal because I'm afraid of not having any privacy. Um, you know, I had my stuff gone through a lot when I was a kid and they were just dumb, like notes being passed back and forth, you know, with a little, little tick in the side that you can, you know, but, but those were my notes and I didn't, I didn't want that to be, you know, to, to go through. So, and and I will say as a mother, I'm pretty, I respect my children's privacy, um, you know, very much up until a point if they prove otherwise but then i'm looking for a certain thing if that makes sense if they're experimenting i'm looking for whatever object of experimentation you know like i don't want to see like if there's a journal i don't want to see it like i do not want to see it um but yeah i i i completely understand i don't know i just really felt i understand where he's coming from completely and i feel so bad that that trust was broken, that ultimate trust in a way that was so powerfully shaming him. Um, it's just got this, this is, this is heavy. I wasn't expecting this book to be this heavy. And I'll add too. So Prince talks about, you know, obviously I was jumping around in that section, but he talks about how he overheard his mom making homophobic uh, comments, or you can kind of see how it wasn't a safe place for him. Why would he tell her this? Like she's uh, she's coming at him, and again, his mom on brand uh, makes things about herself. Uh, she uh, also can gaslight um, and weaponize trauma. We're we're under, but we're also understanding explosive lioness, wounded feline dragging her tail. Right, like he gave that imagery, and I, somebody said it. I can't remember who it was, but in because we talked, we we alluded to the hyper-masculine culture within Jamaica. And it is not uncommon to hear that basically homosexuality is punishable by death. And so uh, there was a part in the section too where I want to say, I can't remember, but something from Prince's father had, I guess, mentioned to the mother when they were dating or something like that. Like, if I have a son who's gay, I'm going to kill him kind of thing like that and i wonder i can't remember specifically where that happened uh in the timeline but it was just another example of how prince's mom has no tact and how she presents things and so even just hearing stories like that it's like well he doesn't know his dad but like even hearing that it's like his whole everything around him all of his supports that are supposed to show him that he's safe and loved safe and loved and all of this is he doesn't feel safe and then on top of that, the women from this culture are expected and almost trained to uphold this really unhealthy form of masculinity. And that's what they were doing in that parking lot. And there was one quote that I didn't get to, but I'll share it right here real quick. Uh, Page 37, he's giving his thoughts on masculinity. So he says, 
Masculinity is a social construct. It is a set of traits, behaviors, and roles associated with boys, men, and people with penises. And Ray Raywin Cowell's masculinities, Cowell makes many vital distinctions about masculinity. Numerous masculinities exist and can be produced within the same setting. Violence among men is often transactional and a means of asserting their gender. This logic is how I could go from the scorned gay black boy in school to earning the respect of my peers by, quote, standing up for myself or playing along with the charade of heteronormativity. Masculinity also shifts in response to cultural events, end quote. So there's a lot going on, even in that, um, that him being outed like that. Um, but the way that they went about it is truly, I mean, ammunition for many, many years of therapy because it's it's going for someone's identity. And on top of that, he's talking about the intersectionality of the fact that uh, I'm a black man, first of all, with relatives and family uh, and a reputation of uh, criminality within the family. So there's already that danger. His uncles and his father have been murdered via a bullet in the back of their head. Um, and so he already fears the fact that he's a black man and also is looks like his father. But then in Jamaican culture, it is also a threat and a danger to be a, a gay person, right? Um, and so his whole identity, based on his support systems around him, are showing him, you ain't safe being who you are. And then the way that they did this, I mean, it's just, it, it was bad. It was really bad, very traumatic. And, and they also approached him as if he did something wrong, like so terribly wrong. Like, how could you do this? Why didn't you tell us you murdered someone? Like, it's, he's gay. He loves men. Like, he's talking about who he loves. Like, it, it, and to, to be loved and to find love is one of the most wonderful gifts of life, no matter who it is. And, and but they treat it like it's some major crime against, you know, against them. Not not even against himself. But how could you do this to us? You know, and it's just so, so, so raw and so just the rife with the trauma and the whole. I, it's disgusting. Again, I mean that's judgmental, but I, 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 I gosh, yeah, that's um, it's just. I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> um, a couple things that I wanted to hit real quick that we didn't talk about yet. Um, when he's at his grandmother's house and the kids are sitting around the table and they're playing like their card game, the fact that one of the uncles comes in or cousins or whoever this young man is takes one of the girls and then they go away. And then that leads to an argument. Part of me, all of me is just like, he definitely did something inappropriate to that young lady and it probably gets swept under the table so much. And it's like, even when he was talking to these two gentlemen before and they're like, you have to learn to drink beer. Cause that's what Jamaican men do. You, and he's like telling himself that there's these unwritten rules that I haven't learned that as a man yet that I have to learn for myself. It's like all this internal pressure on himself to be something that he's not. And it's unfair. And, it's just they have all these expectations and a lot of stuff, unfortunately, families try to sleep under the rug 
but these things need to be brought to the light so that they can get better. And thank you, Nita, for bringing that up. Because I read it and I told you how I was like reading this today. And I didn't rush through it. I, I really did sit down and read this. I read it and I was just like, I read it over a couple of times. I'm like, now that would... I was reading it and that would be my critique of the section is that it wasn't fully developed of what the fuck happened because I'm sitting here confused and I'm like, you put it in the book, but like, could you be a little bit more explicit or at least give some interpretation of what you think happened? Cause I think I knew. And like you said, Nita, you knew. And I think pretty much anybody who read that is like, "Mm, something's off about that, but maybe it'll be revisited later. I, and you know, we're slicing this book up in, just based on how the page numbers work. So maybe we'll get more insight into that later, but it could have been dealt with a little bit more specifically in that moment, especially since the style of this book is bouncing back and forth between different backstories and stuff like that. I wish that that could have been a little bit more defined, but there's no shortage of trauma and generational curses and the impacts of toxic masculinity and, um, all of the all of the things um and i will say as a therapist i literally it's is it art imitating life i don't know i'm reading this book right like between sessions today and stuff like that and i have a client who's basically telling this story about when basically the father found out that she was gay put her out of the house like disowned her removed resources right and it's like i i think i had already read the section at that point and then it's like i'm as a therapist i'm supposed to and i guess my style is that uh if somebody tells me something that's like insane i often tell my clients please write a book um because i would read it um but you know uh, that's literally what we're doing here we're reading memoirs and it's like you know use this thing uh that the the story that you have to normalize it for somebody else um but i'm hearing this and i'm and and it's just kind of that even as a therapist like some therapists be like oh um and how did you interpret that or how did that make you feel or whatever i'm like god damn shit you know i'm just saying that in the middle of the session i'm like what the fuck that's that's so fucked up and i told this client today i shit you not in my seven and a half years of being a therapist i thought i told her i said i have never And I said, I tell clients all the time, nothing can surprise me. But I said, for this being a first session, I said, I don't think, I think you win the award for the most trauma packed into a very first therapy session. So congratulations. It was, it was on that, that level. And I think, you know, I had just read this, but also like to see, you know, I work with a lot of clients who, you know, they share their stories about coming out and stuff like that. The way that, and I just don't, and I think I resonate with Becky when you know, she says, I just don't get it. I, I just don't understand. I have a child and I, I know that bond. I know that love for a child. I know that seeing this, this little person who's helpless grow into somebody who develops their personality and uh, starts to learn who they're going to be and explores and makes mistakes and stuff like that. I truly cannot fathom in my brain. I can't imagine. First of all, I look back at the generation before me, like my mother and father who terrible human beings. I don't have anything to do with them. I set healthy boundaries because that's what you have to do to protect your energy. But I can't, I don't comprehend. I really cannot comprehend how you can bring a child or create a child or have a bond with a child and then later on abuse them. 
and literally show them you are worthless to me because of a trait about yourself that you do not control. Being gay is not a choice. And that's the part that really doesn't, it doesn't click with me. Um, and it's, that's, it's really heartbreaking. I think from even just as a parent to see someone reject their child, it, I don't know. I and mean, I can't even say it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. It's, it's vicarious trauma. Uh, like when I heard that story earlier from in the therapy session, but also reading it in this book, um, also having seen it happen time and time and time again throughout. And like, um, you know, Nita had said earlier, some types of therapy still try to therapy the gay out of people. The whole pray the gay away movement. It's, 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 it's truly disgusting. And even the idea, the pride and the, the audacity that someone who, quote, I believe being a therapist is a privilege. The fact that people come to you with the the most intimate details of their life, what like the audacity and the pride that a person could possibly have to think that I am in a position of power and I will change you whether you like it or not. It's fucking disgusting. It's truly disgusting. And I have actually encountered therapists who operate in this way and disgusting. Quote, shortly after that night, my mother enrolled me in therapy. In our first session, my mother was invited to talk to the therapist with me. I looked the therapist squarely in the face, fidgeted in my seat, and asked, I just need to know that I'm safe. How would you define mental and physical abuse? The therapist was a young white woman with a warm demeanor. Her brown hair touched her ears. She looked between my mother and me in the, in the narrow office and cleared her throat before explaining the difference between the two. Are you experiencing either of those things? I looked at my mother for a defying moment and shook my head. No, while feeling the fight leave me. Even in my righteous defiance, I still had a sense that my anger went beyond the situation, the current situation. My betrayal was tinged with the fact that it hurt to know that my mother, a black woman in a race that often admonished therapy, thought that I was deviant enough to necessitate help that she couldn't give me. Though it felt like I was dead to my mother, it also felt like a part of me was dying too. I was irritable, seemingly unloved, and being prodded by hands larger than mine. My fighting spirit couldn't win every battle, so therapy was my compromise. Therapy unexpectedly became a haven, a place where an adult could tell me that it wasn't unreasonable to want parents that could accept your sexuality. It also became a place that I could be challenged. In one of my solo sessions with the therapist, I vented about how much I despised my parents for how much they subconsciously made me feel like I should hate myself, end quote. Yeah, I just, I mean, first of all, he was forced to go. I will say that I, I was also forced to go to therapy because I was the one with the problem and I can't leave. But like him, I did find it um, actually a great place to vent and to not be judged like I was at home. And I love that in a defiant glance, you know, like you, I know now that you know that you're abusing me. Right. Because you're you this is an unsafe environment, just so you know that we're clear, kind of like I got your number and I'm going to control this. Right. So I, I really that I, I like that. Um, but also that that he found that he found a place to um, 
to kind of let loose. Um, but also, why wouldn't, I mean, of course he would hate his parents for how much they'd um, made him feel like he should hate himself. Because that too mirrors my upbringing. Like there wasn't really much to to like about myself, according to them. So um, yeah, this is, again, this is almost, yeah, and I didn't realize how much I had in common with him until we're talking this through. I don't know why. <laughs> but it's like every quote you're saying, I'm like, well, damn, that's that's my childhood. <laughs> that's one of the, I think, unifying pieces of memoirs is that, like, those of us, for example, I always go back to the Prince Harry thing. And it's like, we all thought, okay. <laughs> what is this wealthy prince going to have to tell me that? And like pretty much everyone in that book club was like, Oh my God. Like there were so many stories where it's just like, and I think it all comes back to the common denominator. in a lot of this is first of all, pithy stereotypical, but hurt people, hurt people. And we're, we're able to find ways to connect with these people. And I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times. I love memoirs because it helps me to not only get into somebody's head, but it helps me to, it gives, you know, from, we all have our own stories. We're not all exactly like the people that we read these stories from, but pain transcends, even if it's not the exact intensity or color or shape of pain. But that last line on, his parents were intent on teaching him to hate himself, even though the father wasn't around to do that. But quotes and anecdotes and things that were shared about his father, you know, the two people that created him were able to successfully, which is not a success at all, show him. And the whole point was, you need to be, you need to hate yourself because you're, there's something wrong with you. And I had just shared about how, you know, with me being a parent, I can't imagine being in a mindset where I could make my child feel that way. So it's very heavy stuff. Um, and this is just a thing I kind of popped in my head. Um, traditionally, Black families are anti-therapy for the older generation. So the fact that his mom wanted him to go to therapy just because he was gay and he thought she thought the therapist was going to make him not gay is ridiculous to me because most of the time therapy is frowned upon and like, if I tell my mom I'm in therapy, which I have, she's like, why? I don't understand why you're wasting your money. So it's one of those things that a lot of like older black folk just don't understand. So the fact that she was that hell-bent on trying to make him change is crazy to me. And I can speak on it from the perspective of being a therapist. People bring their kids to therapy with the premise of, well, first of all, of course, if somebody's a minor, I talk to the parents first because the parents are the usually the ones who call me. Sometimes I'll have a adolescent who will reach out to me via email or phone call or something like that. And I'm like, first of all, you're a brave to reach out and to get therapy for yourself. That's amazing. Even if we don't end up doing therapy, because sometimes that's the interaction. And then I talk to their parents and their parents are like, oh, no, <laughs> we're not doing that. But I always tell them, even if I don't hear from them again, I say, you're very brave and this is an important step that you're taking. But I also, because of legalities, I have to be like, but I have to speak to your parent in order to set this up because you're a minor. And, but I, sometimes I, or most times I'll get 
a a call from a parent and they're like, okay, so here's, you know, my child is failing her classes. They're talking back to the teacher. They're, you know, slamming doors and breaking stuff and all of this. And you need to do something with them. That's kind of the, the premise. And then I always, this is just me who I am. Cause I, I already know if I come into the picture, sometimes parent, and I know what parents are doing behind closed doors. I'm like, and I'll ask the parent point blank. I'm like, does your child know you're looking for a therapist for them? And if they say not yet, I say, okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to have a conversation with your child and let them know that therapy is a choice. Here's my website. Give them uh, the ability to browse through my website and see if they think that this is something that they want to do. And then you get back to me. I'm not booking an appointment with you right now until you have that conversation. Because the worst thing I can do as a therapist is to agree to do a session with somebody who's being forced to be there. Now, sometimes it'll slip through the cracks and parents will lie to me and make it. And then I'm in the first session with the child and they're like, yeah, I was just told five minutes before that I was coming here and now I'm here. And then I have words with the parents. Um, I'm really good at building rapport with young people anyway. So it usually doesn't like completely backfire. But I say all of that to say parents really are, are really are out here bringing their children to therapy, having had a conversation with the therapist, like, here's what's wrong with them, you need to fix it. They'll also try to give me a diagnosis. And I'm like, hmm, what do you need me for? You already got it all figured out, right? And so I am really good at being an ally to the kids because the kid can't all it can't be all bad. Even if they are in trouble or in the juvenile de- detention system or they've got charges or they've been put out of school or they're making bad grades or whatever there's always more to the story than just the behavior but that was my long-winded way of saying parents really do sometimes ask me hey you need to fix my child and i can also attest to there are times where those parents and i let them know hey your child is has value just because they're human and because they're here, they're not broke. They're not a broken machine that needs to be fixed. And I'll tell them that I do lose some people there, but I'd rather advocate for that child. Even before I've met the child, I'd rather advocate for them and let the parent know where I stand. Cause I personally don't want to deal with parents who are going to be hovering over me or telling me how I'm going to do my job. Cause <laughs> I did not get to the point where I was running my own business to be now granted I yeah I do work for my clients and yes I have to you know obviously cooperate and stuff like that but I'm not the type of person who's going to be told how I'm going to do something or how I'm going to practice um and so I do I do advocacy through how I handle those tor- sorts of situations and I do lose people sometimes I do lose parents who are like oh no actually we changed our mind I was like okay take care but You know, and they'll go and find a therapist who will talk at their child instead of collaborate with their child and their child won't, their child will resent them. And I'd rather their child resent therapy and resent the therapist because the therapist is not being client centered rather than them come to me and I'm dealing with the train wreck of somebody being forced to be there or something. It's a mess. Hopefully that made sense. I I was more so just like sharing different like anecdotes on how that plays out, but it's crazy to me that someone would first of all spend the kind of money that therapy costs to then 
you know, uh, almost like put this person, put their child in front of another adult and say, hey, fix them. To which I'm like, are you insane? Like, if you, another adult, can't, quote, fix them or make them do what you want to do, what makes you think that a stranger can do that? It's weird to me. So, similarly, um, that's how education is. You know, can't you just give my kid an A? Or they're studying. I don't understand why they're, fa- oh, they are. Well, when they study, what 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 are you seeing? How are they studying? If I was a fly on the wall where they're studying, what would I see? Well, I don't know. I don't see them study. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Or I've had kid, parents say, I can't deal with them. You just do whatever. So it's very, it's similar in a way. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't get it. I, I don't. Like if you're not bought in, parent, why, why are you, why, why would you ever think your kid's going to be? And if you can't raise them and help them make good decisions, how, how am I going to do it? Although I usually end up having better relationships with them than their parents, it seems a lot of times. So I will say that one of my favorite parts of being a therapist, and I, I guess I market myself for, you know. Uh, and say that I specialize in working with teenagers, adolescents, and college students because I truly love not so much ganging up on a parent because that's not really what I do, but I love building rapport with a young person who, for whatever one reason or another, does not click or does not have that safety at home. Or they do have the safety at home and they just need an outside place to be able to process some stuff. I truly love seeing that happen uh, in therapy. So it's very fulfilling. But also as a person who wishes, you know, as I look back, I'm like, I wish I had therapy as a teenager. Um, it's almost like it's it's coming full circle where I'm able to create the safe place and environment for somebody who is at that age, who has access to the service because it definitely could change the trajectory of somebody's life. So I do like that in his him sharing his story about going to therapy that it he was able to find an ally, especially since the, the therapist was very different than his background and things like that. It's almost a little like comical too at how, what did he say, the explosive lioness cho- chooses like the petite little white woman with like the short crop like haircut to think that that was you know i i, I think it's a little it's, it's a little uh comic relief i don't know if that was his intention but i'm glad that he at least found an ally i'm also interested in seeing if that uh plays out in in further into the book but as we wrap up for today i will say that uh for next week we are going to be uh reviewing pages 85 through 174. So if you're listening to the podcast, definitely come back uh, next week to to hear that discussion. But until next time, thank you for listening and take care. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.